Weird Warriors podcast. On this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode, we'll be taking a look at Weird War Tales number 14. But first, Rich has a little bit of retroactive history for you. Yes, I do. I've mentioned the Find a Grave website a couple of times on the show. Uh, on the anniversary of Russ Heath's death on uh, August 23rd, I went looking for his page. Uh, no luck for whatever reason. Uh, I can't even find where he's buried. So maybe he was cremated and scattered or something. I don't know. Uh, so I looked for Dick Ayers on a whim, someone else we've mentioned here, and I found it. He died May 4th. 2014 and is married at the Mount Calvary Cemetery in White Plains, New York. No flowers or pictures were there, so I paid my respects and added two photos of the man, uh, one of them in his World War II uniform. Like I said, it's a great website. Go check it out. Also, I was listening to our last episode and I realized I misspoke at the end of the last battle. Uh, the gear Rogers was wearing that his sergeant was examining looked like it came out of World War I not World War II. That really caught my ear when I heard it after the fact. Like, also, also, The Twilight Zone came out in 1963 and Weird War Tales came out in 1971. We kind of made it sound like Alex Toth did Weird War before Twilight Zone. Obviously not. Yeah, who can tell? There's a lot of there's a lot of talking going on. There's a lot of things being said, and you must listen to these things more carefully than I do when I replay them. I just, I'm just like, I replay them the morning they come out to go like, okay, does it sound incredibly terrible? Oh no, it's not just me. So there's (laughs) someone else there. So it's fine. You know, I do like to go back and every once in a while, I'll go back and just randomly listen to old episodes. That's why photos will randomly pop up in like the episode two folder on our episode six folder or something. Cause it'd be like, I'll I'll, I'll catch something that we're talking about. And like, is there a picture of that in 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 the album? And I'll go look. I'm like, no, there isn't. But we talked about that kind of a lot. There should be a picture about that in the album. So See, I'll put a picture about that in the album. <laughs> if, if people haven't caught on yet to the master plan and how it works, the, the reason I decided to do a podcast was I figured I could rope Rich into it. And, and, and suddenly I have a researcher on my hands <laughs> who will do stuff like this. Therefore, we have more content. It's it's ingenious, really. It's what you get these random posts on the Facebook page saying, you know, Weird Warriors podcast out on a photo to episode 13. (laughs) (laughs) No doubt, man. And at the end of this episode, you will see some evidence that people are catching on to that. So before we jump into the cover detail of Weird War Tales number 14, we're gonna take a break for a little bit of podcast promo action for one of my favorite shows and early supporter of this show. And they did up a new promo. So I'm actually going to say it before I play it. This is going to be for the Earth 2 podcast. And once we play that, we'll be right back. Hi, David. How are you? Oh, Peter, man, I've been better. I'm really fed up and depressed. I can't lie. What's wrong? What's been happening? Man, I'm just really dissatisfied and really down as far as fulfilling my podcast needs right now what exactly are you looking for maybe a dc comics podcast yeah there's plenty of those yeah i know but i need one that chronicles the origins and the development of the dc comics multiverse from before flash of two worlds through to crisis of infinite earths yeah exactly that and maybe something else as well that factored in the importance and the legacy of dc comics golden age characters throughout the silver ages and bronze ages of comics that sounds epic it does sound epic it sounds exactly the sort of podcast that i would listen to 
Shall we just do it ourselves then? In many ways we have the same mind. That's a great idea. Fortunately, it just so happens I've built this handy transmatter cube. That's perfect. Will that take us to Earth too? It'll take us to all of the multiverse. Fantastic. Right then, what are we waiting for? Let's go. Transmitter device activated. Coordinate set for Earth 2. The Earth 2 Podcast. Check out our website at theearth2podcast.com. You can find us on all the social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as The Earth 2 Podcast. And you can find us on Twitter, podcast underscore Earth 2. Join us and we'll see you around the multiverse. And we are back. So Rich is going to give us the cover detail for Weird War Tales number 14. Art by Luis Dominguez. It's still 20 cents, ladies and gentlemen. The red Weird War title is in sharp contrast to the dark blue night sky behind it. Several paratroopers jump out of a spectral aircraft in front of a full moon, but one instantly sees that instead of faces, there are white skulls under the troopers' helmets. The shooter, the one closest to the viewer, is starting to billow open. The uh, cover date is June 1973, on sale May 13th, 1973. Killjoy was here. I have no idea what the paratroopers are jumping out of. It looks very vaguely like B-17, but they don't have a jump door in the fuselage like that. And transports don't have gun positions. So, anywho. It's the ghost of a plane. (laughs) Of some nebulous form. It's not the Twilight Zone anymore, so I can nitpick. (laughs) Yeah, but there are skeletal soldiers jumping out of a plane. But hey. That's not what Killjoy is about. It's not about excuses. It's about, it's about going for blood, even if skeletons are involved. So good job. All right, so as far as my comments and commendations on this cover, I just take note that this is another cover that uses nor needs any extra blurbs or hype on the image, despite my preference for such things. I think it works perfectly without it. Uh, it actually enhances the kind of sinister look of the image. The artist, Luis Dominguez, that's not a name that I'm overly familiar with, but this cover is moody, eye-catching, extremely well-drawn, great use of color. At first, I, you know, I was like, why do dead soldiers need parachutes? But then I figured, oh, skeletons, pretty fragile on impact, perhaps. Yeah, a little actually, bit of killjoy that I stopped myself from doing. <laughs> well, actually, you know, uh, Luis Dominguez has done a bunch of the covers for this. You know, he, he has a very, this, this, if you look at the cover, you can see the little, you know, his initials LD on a lot of these. So, See, I told you, that's how much attention do I pay and how much retention do I have? <laughs> I, I, am, I am a walking case of ADD, man. 50 years old and it has not died down one bit. So. But uh, yeah, this this is a great cover. I like whatever it is. I love the ghostly plane. The troopers are well equipped, although I'm not too sure about their fur-lined gear. This kind of takes a little way, a uh, little bit away from it. But anywho, all right. So that's our cover, which is really cool, and apparently by someone whose name I'd better start getting stuck in my head. <laughs> so we'll jump into the first story in this issue, and I'll take it from here. It's called Dream of Disaster. It's six pages long. And we should get this out of the way. Just like in Weird War Tales number 11, Sheldon Meyer writes the entire issue, which is broken up into several chapters. Only this time, Tony DeZuniga pencils the entire book and Alfredo Alcala inks the entire book. So let's get that out of the way right here. Now for the synopsis for the first story, Dreams of Disaster, it goes a little something like this. Sergeant Michael McBride has a clairvoyant dream about the Japanese attacking Pearl Harbor. 
a mysterious soldier talks to him as McBride tries to clear his head about what he saw. Flashback. His wife, a naturalized Japanese woman named Suko, had been supposed to pick him up at Schofield Barracks, and when she didn't show up, he hurried home to discover that her father had dragged her off. A wealthy exporter, he'd never forgiven her for marrying an American. He had tried these stunts before. McBride hurried to the Kukamura Exporting Company her father owned and was surprised to find it deserted. Exploring the office, McBride discovered a memo to the plant's employees, warning them to evacuate before December 7th, 1941. Before McBride can fully digest the meaning of this memo, Kukamura appears. Commander Kukamura, Japanese naval intelligence, brandishing a pistol. Suko is on her father's private yacht, about to sail for Japan. McBride will never see her again. Within hours, their two countries will be at war, but McBride will already be dead. Demanding McBride to turn over the memo to him, McBride attacks instead. The flashback ends here. There was a struggle, two shots, something hit him, and that was all McBride remembers. The pieces fall together, and McBride reaches for the phone to warn command, but it's too late. The mysterious soldier gestures out the window and shows McBride that the attack has already begun, but it's also too late for Michael McBride. The soldier now points to the floor where two bodies lie, a smoking pistol between them. One is Mr. Kukamura. The other is McBride himself. Not believing he is dead, McBride runs off, and the mysterious soldier sighs, for he is death. He says, in war, my job becomes so tiresome. So many dead mortals to collect. Evil ones, good ones, on both sides. Mortal reader... What you just saw happened over 30 years ago at the time of the printing of this comic book. Yes, I moved slowly in Michael McBride's case. Why not? He was already dead. Did it change anything? Listen and judge for yourself. End of chapter one. And, we tell uh, you the tales I have heard. Yes, <laughs> yes. I love that little touch at the end. That's, I, I like keeping that there. So Rich, after the synopsis, is going to hit us with a little... Killjoy and History Minute. The unit patch on McBride's shoulder is probably that of the 25th Infantry Division, Tropic Lightning. The patch's design changed in 1943 to its current electric strawberry appearance. And I don't know what it looked like in 1941, but it probably looked like the patch that he has on his shoulder. Uh, the 25th was on Oahu for the attack on Pearl Harbor. So well played by uh, Meyer and Dezumiga. Comments and commendations. I'm a big fan of the panels where the fleet is under attack. Page one, panel one, and page five, panel five. That's easy enough to remember. The reds, the oranges, and yellows silhouetting the battleship superstructures real colorful really well done i also love the reveal of the mysterious soldier in the very last panel the one eye socket is empty the other is still full and gazing at it it's a real good yeah i mean the art of course is great you got tony d and double a making for one heck of a combo as for panels to call out i'll of course mention the nice use of wiggly panel borders for the flashback i always like touches like that 
for a specific call out, I'll go for the first appearance of the mysterious soldier. Last panel on page one. I love the phasing in effect used on our host as he materializes. As for the story, I was honestly left wondering what the heck death's point was to letting McBride see the future that was really just the next morning after his death. That all felt a little wobbly to me, but I'll let it go since I saw this was another full issue story in a separate chapter kind of deal. Yeah, didn't War as Hell teach you anything? Death is a jerk. <laughs> yeah, and he kind of he kind of even says that in the those you know balloons at the end there. He's like, ah, I know I strung him out, but why not? <laughs> and I was like, he's amusing himself. So I get that. And all told. This was a cool first chapter. I just had that little wobble at the end as I was reading it. So got to call it out. Yeah. I try to put myself in the mindset of I'm just pulling this off the newsstand and reading it. And I, I try to stream of consciousness, stuff like that, because I'm good with that. I'm not so good with memory. So before I forget everything, we'll move on to the second story and you can take it away. Okay. A Phantom for a co-pilot. Five pages long. Just lunge right, right into it. Suko wakes up aboard the Yamata, her father's yacht, four days after Pearl Harbor. She'd been drugged and is now dressed in the traditional kimono instead of her usual dungarees. She's surprised to see an anti-aircraft gun and Navy personnel on deck. Dr. Taka informs her that Japan is now at war with the U.S. and England. Suko demands that since she is an American citizen by marriage, she be exchanged as a prisoner of war. She also demands to see her father and is informed that both her father and husband were dead. The yacht's commander had returned to the exporting company later, found them, and took pictures for his report. Japanese planes destroyed the building during the attack. At that moment, an American plane arrives overhead and the anti-aircraft gun is swung towards it. Suko throws herself at the weapon and pushes the barrels down so the shells strike the ocean. When the crewmen secure her to take her below decks, she breaks away, seizes a grenade from one of the guards, and lobs it at the gun crew. The explosion destroys the weapon. The Japanese officer pulls his pistol and guns down Suko. The penalty for treasonous death. Far above, the American pilot witnessed all of this. He wants to blast the boat, but worries Suko may still be alive. A ghostly voice tells him, it's all right. Nothing can hurt me anymore. She appears next to him, imploring him to drop his bombs, but he's frozen into inaction at the incredible sight. So Suko drops the bomb herself, scoring a direct hit on the Yamata and sending it in flames to the bottom of the Pacific. The pilot flies off, completely baffled, and the ghostly image of Suko materializes on the surface of the sea. Mike, wherever you are, I'm coming. I'll find you somehow. And the killjoy was here. Yeah, man, that, that pilot has some amazing vision if he could see Suko get shot from the altitude he was flying at. And uh, it just also does a more natural nitpick uh, that the uh, Dauntless's national insignia should have had a red circle inside, inside of the star at this uh, stage of the war. You know, they took the circle out of the star because the red circle from a distance looked like a Japanese uh, meatball. And yeah, we didn't need that kind of uh, <laughs> confusion going on. Yeah, not every pilot had the eyesight this guy does. <laughs> Make those distinctions at a distance. So comments and commendations. Uh, for me, this is, of course, where the plan started to come together story-wise. It started to click for me. So I, sometimes I'm slow, you know? So I, I was really hitting the ground here. I, I, I was getting it. 
So superhuman eyesight aside, I enjoyed this chapter quite a bit, and I was really cheering for the grenade-tossing Suko-turned-ghostly-bomb-dropping Avenger. Like, I, I really dug that. I was, I was rooting for her the whole time. Art-wise, I really dug the panel where the plane is flying away from the now wrecked and burning ship. Just really cool looking. Again, every panel in this thing is right up my alley. It's it's Tony and and Double A. Uh, I'm I'm in a good good place with the art, but I had to call out one panel and that's mine for this chapter. There's a reference in the first panel to the sinking of the British ships HMS Prince of Wales and HMS uh, Repulse, uh, two capital ships. That I thought was a real nice touch. They even had the date right. Uh, depending on where the Yamada was compared to the international dateline. The one-eyed soldier from the last story is now an airman. The way he's portrayed with splotchy grays and blacks throughout this book is, a, like I said, it's a really, really good look. My favorite panel is, uh, there's one on uh, page four, panel one, where that damp, when the, uh, when the Dauntless is uh, banking over the Yamada. That, that's just a really cool looking angle. I like that one a lot. Yeah, a lot of a lot of good work with with planes in this chapter. So uh, so both of us are happy. <laughs> so yeah, uh, chapter two just really kicking it. So we'll move on to chapter three. I'll take it. This one is called "Too Late for the Death March," and it's a six pager. Synopsis starts off with the year. 1942. Charlie and Fred, two GI scouts on Corregidor Island in the Philippines, are fighting their way through Japanese elements as they strive to return to the tunnel entrance of their fort. As they do, one gripes about a letter he'd gotten from home. His brother had a buddy, Mike McBride, who disappeared with his Japanese wife the day of the attack on Pearl Harbor. McBride's father-in-law was a Japanese spy. There's suspicion McBride had turned traitor and deserted. Finally reaching the tunnel, the two Americans are stopped by a third soldier who orders them not to enter. When they ignore him and head for the entrance, the sergeant shoves them aside and dives into the tunnel himself. The explosion flattens the two stunned GIs, who are even more surprised when the sergeant simply walks out of the smoking chamber. Corregidor has fallen, he says. The Japanese took that fort while you were on patrol. Following the sergeant, the GIs are horrified to see a large column of American POWs being marched off by the Japanese. Most of them are wounded and won't make it. The sergeant then leads Charlie and Fred to a group of Filipino guerrillas so they can continue the fight. The patch the sergeant has on his shoulder doesn't belong to any unit on these islands. What's he doing here? One of the GIs asks. I owe a buddy a favor, is the reply. Finding the guerrillas, the sergeant abruptly vanishes. When they ask where he went, Major Garcia reveals that he and his men had been watching them for hours on their approach, and that there had only ever been two of them. Much later, the GIs talk about the sergeant. One realizes that the patch on the sergeant's shoulder belonged to his brother's unit in Hawaii. Could it have been McBride? Where did he come from? Where did he go? could have come from anywhere if he was a ghost (laughs) (laughs) okay killjoy page two panel one another sniper with a bayonet what the hell (laughs) also while there were holdouts in the philippines there wouldn't have been any on corregidor the island was only a mile wide by four miles long 
not too conducive for a guerrilla campaign. Now on Muzan, on the other hand, uh, still loving the ghostly guy. He's wearing a, like a headband this time. He's got still the one eye, the rotted teeth. Tony D just did his damn research on this one. Springfield rifles, 16 inch bayonets, the leggings. And on page two, panel four, I love how wary the soldiers look as they approach the fort's tunnel. This was probably my favorite chapter in the book, actually. Yeah, I'd, I'd have bet, even though not a lot of planes in this one, but <laughs> for my, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know I'm going to get more planes. So for my comments and commendations, um, I got to say, it was pretty hard for me. Uh, we left this out and we're largely going to leave this kind of stuff out of synopses, but it was hard for me to read constant use of the term that the soldiers kept using for the Japanese in this story, even given its year of publication in 1973. So that's like sort of ring the old comics man bell right there. Beyond that, well, I, I should say the ghost of McBride even uses the term and his wife is Japanese. So I, I guess I get it, but reading it in 2021, especially just kind of, so also these ghosts, both McBride and Suko seem to be able to get as solid as they want when they feel like it, which was a bit of a surprise. What with McBride slapping the other soldier aside and all. So in that sniper on the second page. We didn't mention him in the synopsis. It's just these guys are making their way and there's a sniper. They spot him. They instantly shoot him. He didn't stand a chance. Uh, he didn't even merit a sound effect when he died. Oh, that's what happens when you snipe with a band. <laughs> yeah, again, uh, good. A detail that completely escaped me. I, I, that didn't strike me as odd at all. But uh, of course, you're going to pick up on that. But I just was like, man, why was he even there? Because he didn't even he didn't even merit a, like a sound effect. He didn't put up any challenge at all. They were just like, they barely even mentioned it. The one dude was just like, so anyway, pew, and uh, McBride was probably a traitor. Let's keep walking. Yeah. So still, I did. I liked the conversation between the two soldiers about McBride's loyalties, all the rumors and etc. This was a fine chapter and Myers ever solidifying multi-part story. Art wise, I'd pick the first panel on the last half page, the casual tranquility of the camp scene and the soft blue colors of the background contrast nicely with the strangeness and bombast of the preceding pages. It's just a nice cool down panel, very well drawn. I like that kind of stuff. So there we go. We're going to lunge from that into <laughs> before the next story. We've got a visit to the letters page at the APO Weird War Tales. So Rich is going to start us off there. Okay. The letter that I have selected for your enjoyment was written by John Lundry. No address given. Dear Joe, I just finished reading Weird War Tales number 10 and I almost keeled over. The fierce beauty was who is haunting the haunted chateau? The art was nowhere near perfect, but it was okay. It's a shame the story didn't match. The second story was a doozy, the room that remembered. The art was just terrific, but the story was garbageville. Whoever wrote it must have died laughing when he finished it. The third piece of trash was made of pure bunk. <laughs> I tell you, you guys are taking a big step backwards. In an early issue, you had some great ones like Toy Jet and The Pool. <laughs> Russ Heath. <laughs> I sure hope you guys improve on your next issues, or you may as well forget it. Being harsh on you is rather rough, but you had it coming. No, I feel like guys, okay. You had it coming. Love it. 
Joe responds, uh, uh, we could have easily discarded your letter as the one uncomplimentary letter we received, but we've decided to print it anyway. Most of our fans thought number 10 was the best yet. And it's interesting to note that Len Wein, who wrote Cyrano's Army, was also one half of the writing team on The Pool, which you feel was one of the best Weird War Tales stories. But no hard feelings. All we want to do now is work harder to win over our last holdout. Yeah, so like I said, there's always one letter that just jumps out at you. Whatever guys just go off with, like, Garbageville, pure bunk. (laughs) Yeah. 1970s hate mail. Just fan entitlement and, you know, hyperbole and and, and faux outrage over nothing. It's nothing new, people. It just used to take longer to get to the surface. Now the internet just lets people vent that immediately with abandon, but it, it's it's always been there, and and we got examples of it bubbling up in almost every issue. It's just it's it's just a delight to know we've never changed. So on the lighter side, I picked out a letter from a man named Doug Edwards from Brooksville, Pennsylvania. He starts off and says, "Dear Joe, I have been reading Weird War Tales for a long time, and I think it is the best comic on the stands. I just finished reading issue number ten, and who?" haunting the haunted chateau and Cyrano's army were so good that the only way I can explain how good they were is by saying one word excellent they are in the running with toy jet as being among the best comic stories in a long time the drawings were all superb and the stories the best yet so little antidote for our buddy over there we got Orlando's response dear Doug And we promised to try to never let you down, Doug. One interesting note is that when we were looking for reprints before Weird War Tales went all new, we asked some of the war writers to list their favorite stories. Bob Haney mentioned Toy Jet, and we immediately went insane trying to find it in our files. But it was apparently worth all our trouble, since so many of you have joined Bob Haney in calling it your favorite Weird War Tales story. So they both like Toy Jet, but one of them is a little more negative than the other. <laughs> Good Lord. That dude, just pure bunk. <laughs> Garbage. Races that don't get used much anymore. Home, yeah. James. <laughs> yeah. Home, James. This is, <laughs> let's not dally with this. This is pure hokum. <laughs> so we're climbing out of the letters page here and our, our dose of negativity and positivity. And uh, let's see. I guess I did the last one. So, so Rich is going to bring us to the next chapter of the story. Wrap this bad boy up. The ghost of McBride's woman. Six pages. American paratroopers are landing in Luzon, 1945. Dave's chute is damaged by ground fire, and he drifts away from the rest of the unit. Hank defies orders and steers after him. Dave's leg is broken on landing, and Hank helps him get out of there. The Japanese quickly find their chutes and close in. Hank refuses to leave Dave to save himself. Suddenly, a Japanese woman appears, wanting them to follow her. She leads them to a cave, then treats Dave's injuries. She identifies herself as McBride, an American citizen by marriage. McBride has been looking for her husband ever since the war started. The Japanese approach, and although Hank tries to stop her, she slips through his grasp to lead them away from the cave. Hank follows her at a distance as she lures the patrol up a mountain trail and over a cliff. He's amazed to see her standing in midair before she vanishes. He tells the story to Dave back at the cave, who obviously doesn't believe it. Dr. Ramon Ligze of the Filipino Resistant Forces arrives at that moment with two stretcher bearers, looking for the guy with a broken leg. 
They got a message from a Yank sergeant who'd been roaming these hills since the resistance started in 42. But the only one that knew was a girl. It's revealed that both the girl and the sergeant, a guy named McBride, are thought to be ghosts. Hank does a double take. McBride, I guess she finally found her husband. And then death goes on to say, and that's the whole story. Two times when death moved slowly. Did it make any difference? Only you can answer that. Because now you know the story of McBride and his woman. And the ghostly images of Mike and Suku McBride happily stand together in front of death. Just go into my history a minute. Uh, the paratroopers belong to the 511th Parachute Infantry Regiment, 11th Airborne Division. Same unit as Rod Serling, which we brought up last episode. Uh, the date of the story jives with a combat jump into Luzon in the Philippines. It seems like only the 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions ever get in 11 World War II. So this was a great nod. Continue on to say, hey, four for four on the ghostly narrator. So freaking impressed, especially the last two panels. You know, he's dressed as uh, a World War II era American GI. We'll say one thing. You were talking about the whole, um, how they described the uh, the three-letter word for the Japanese in this episode a lot. The whole McBride and his woman thing kind of has another one of these old 1970s phrases that just hasn't aged very well. It's this possessive vibe that's kind of <sighs> yeah because mcbride is obviously referring to the man and he's got his woman yeah it's just you know that one it's yeah it's it's the sexism of the times it's you know the casual racism of the times it's not as bad as if we were doing a show about comics from the 40s man which i've read a bunch of and whoo that stuff will make your eyes pop open but oh, uh <laughs> let, let me tell you i just finished up there's these um anthologies of like uh uh, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman of uh, the Warriors, and I just polished off the Wonder Woman one, and she got more into the war, uh, the actual fighting, fighting than Batman and Superman ever did because Batman was just a guy who didn't he didn't use a gun, and Superman was so powerful they had to find reasons to keep him at home. But there was this one panel in one of the books that I, I was reading that was written during the war where he just she just got a hold of this Japanese pilot, and she's all like, you know. I'm the organ grinder. You're my little monkey. I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> wow. Again, it's 1940s. the race. It's uh, it's it's the race Bannon moment, Ooh. man. It's, it's heathen monkeys sweet, all over again. Sweet Jesus. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's a trip. It's it's something to navigate. So for, for my comments and commendations on this final chapter, I thought this was a great wrap up to Myers full issue story. It was, it was just really cool. Again, we had the surprising solidity of the ghosts with Suko saying, because I can't cut a splint for your buddy's leg with my teeth when she uh, asked for the soldier's bayonet in the cave. And those Japanese soldiers, to me, didn't seem too bright, tumbling over the edge of an apparently quite visible cliff after Suko's phantasmal form floating in front of them. I mean, the, the way the panel was drawn, it looked like broad daylight, no fog, and they just went over like lemmings. So, eh, maybe she was using some kind of ghostly siren call on them or something. I mean, too bad DC doesn't give out no prizes. But it was nice to see the McBrides reunited and to see some bad guys get theirs in the process. Art-wise, I'll call out two silent panels in the story. Page two, panel four, where the Japanese soldiers find the left-behind parachute, and page four, panel two, 
where Suko begins to lead the Japanese soldiers away. Just two very well-executed panels with no captions, no sound effects, no dialogue, serving perfect beats on the page. Just really cool. Yeah, there's there's one panel like after that, because you know, I was looking at it afterwards, or I was rereading your script. There's, there's the one panel where like the four Japanese are tumbling off the cliff like lemmings, and Suko is off the one side. She has this, yay! <laughs> kind of like this, ah, I fooled you, you know, like posed to herself as she's falling alongside him. It's kind of a yeah. She's a got her hands <laughs> like she's got her hands completely both both arms both hands up in the air like woohoo, <laughs> suckers. <laughs> So all right, my that, people, will you? <laughs> all right, so that wraps up the actual issue. And unlike last time around, we've got some ads to spotlight. So Rich will start off with his. Okay. Um, I was thinking about picking the Columbia House 15 records for 11 tapes for 197 ad, simply because of the inside the head of Bill Cosby 8-track displayed. No, thank you. But... At the end of the day, I just couldn't tear myself away from the Husky sports shoes ad on the back cover that warned about drug use. The hit that ended the ball game, score in sports. It has a hand laying on the ground with a hypodermic needle loosely gripped in it. This is the first of these ads that I've seen since starting the show addressing drug use in the 70s. Usually we go all hoo-ha with the ads, but you know, I, I just couldn't do it this time. Yeah, I... I found that kind of shocking on the back cover of a book in 1973. And um, as far as going hoo-ha, uh, you know, just let me get that for you then. Huh? <laughs> uh, see, right between the letters page and the ghost of McBride's woman is a half page ad for stamps, but not just any stamps. No, just what kind of stamps are they then? Well, let's have the ad speak for itself. Save these valuable postage stamps now while they last. Free 40 red China stamps when you send 10 cents for mailing. Forbidden for a generation. Sent to acquaint you with the exceptional values of our special offers. Be among the first to get these valuable red China postage stamps. Banned to American collectors from the very beginning by the U.S. government. Now, at last, you can legally own them, but supplies are strictly limited, so you must act fast. A great opportunity to peek through the bamboo curtain with these 40 fascinating historical stamp issues. We'll also include a copy of our How to Collect Stamps booklet, a sensational free get acquainted offer to introduce you to stamp collecting, world's most rewarding hobby, and <laughs> selections of unusual worldwide stamps from our famous free examination stamps on approval service. No obligation to buy now or ever. Cancel service anytime. Send 10 cents today for mailing. This is a gem for me like the first taste is free we're gonna give you these forbidden stamps from red china behind the bamboo curtain Ooh. i have never seen this ad in any comic book ever and i've read a lot of old comics so this thing just leapt out at me i loved it and i'm gonna cheat i'm gonna go back before we talk more about the stamps ad if you wanna i, I just have to get this in because i'm 12 years old y you open the book and there's an ad for raleigh bikes and it says one for roads, one for loads. That's all I'm going to say. Anyway, that's ads. And now I need to add another photo to the album. <laughs> I, I'm just not going to elaborate on that. But man, the parlance has changed, I think, since that bike ad was was printed. Uh, I, would, I would hope anyway. Uh, so that's the ads. I'm going to take us off to the dead letter office where I talk about people who have liked 
shared, retweeted, and all that kind of stuff, and commented on our episodes. Or so, we could do last words first. Oh, God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> I, skipped, I had it all scrolled up already. So, yeah. Hey, edit that crap. And uh, <laughs> I'll let you just lead off the whole got any last words section. Okay. Right so, next up, got any last words? For me personally, gotta say, Meyer is 2 and 0 for these chaptered books. I like the way he wraps the stories together. Honestly, I'm a, I'm a bigger fan of the first one, but this is still a really solid effort. Like I said, he did his research on this one, 25th ID, 11th Airborne, etc. I'm hoping we see more of this type of effort going forward. Yeah, I would agree. This outing is a little shakier plot-wise than Meyer's debut with the format, but this was still a damn fine, solidly enjoyable comic book read with excellent art to boot. I loved it. I, I wouldn't mind seeing one of these full issue chapter stories become a semi-regular thing here in Weird War Tales. So again, uh, the series is not letting us down. And after, now that we've summed up the issue, I'll take us over to the dead letter office where we talk about people liked, shared, retweeted, or commented on our episodes on Facebook and Twitter and all that kind of stuff. So this one is all about our first special mission. Episode was uh, focusing on war is hell number nine from Marvel Comics. And we got likes and so forth on Twitter from the Telltale Mind, Fan Film Friday's podcast, Kirk Spencer <laughs> at Big Five Army, and the 21st Century Boys, uh, Iowa's Joe Crawford and his son's podcast, Chris Lydon, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, WL3 at W Lomax on Twitter, the Days of High Adventure podcast, Pat Dorian, Professor Frenzy, Iowa's Joe Crawford, Doc Strange, also known as Billy D. Licious, Luke Giaconetti from the Earth Destruction Directive show, Dear Watchers, a Marvel What If podcast. And on Twitter, we got some comments going back and forth here. Relatively Geeky from Professor Allen said, Excellent. Love jumping around every now and then to other titles while staying tied to Weird War. I met Tony Isabella once. Super nice fella. Like you said, he was probably a young kid feeling his oats. Now, this is in reference to something that I kind of harped on about in that episode, as you may remember, little editorial piece by Tony. So I replied and said, glad you like the first special mission. I'm editing the second one this weekend. And I did. <laughs> and yeah, he did. I, I, I actually did. <laughs> Go figure. Um, <laughs> I felt bad getting so ramped up there. And I honestly really like Tony too, but man, that piece. And I, I almost felt it rising back up in me again. So I was out to file. <laughs> it just came back up. So just even right now, but like, then we got Iowa's Joe Crawford saying, love this episode and would love to hear more about more issues. So we do have someone who wants us to revisit as for other series. I would love haunted tank and war that time forgot coverage and tell Tony Isabella hashtag make war. No more. Keep it weird. <laughs> someone on my side. And I said to, to Joe, I said, we definitely have War That Time Forgot and Haunted Tank on the brain. Now, we just have to find the brain. Over on Facebook, we got likes from David Steele and Peter Watson, the two hosts of the Earth 2 podcast promo that were played in this episode back at the top. And Peter stopped by to say, I don't have any issues of that series. I'm really looking forward to this episode. In fairness, I'm really looking forward to every episode. Because you see, Peter is a much nicer guy than I'd say either one of us, but especially me, especially, uh, you. especially <laughs> me. David Steele, his, his partner in crime, says, this looks great, opens eBay. And then 
Sir Martin Gray uh, jumps in and says to David, he says, a few issues are on Marvel Unlimited, including this one, which is rather fab. By the way, lads, are you going to do feedback yet? Feedback makes podcasts better. Now, I threw a, I tried to throw a Martin's comment off by asking if he was talking to David or me, which lent me to discovering Martin didn't know David was one of the co-hosts of the Earth 2 podcast and that he lived really close to Martin, but they still zeroed in on me and said, yeah, when are you starting feedback though? And Rich chimed in and let him know that that's coming with the episode right after the one they just listened to. So it, it takes a while because we recorded so far ahead, but I like that I tried to dodge out and they both just cornered me anyway. <laughs> so we got... We now people have noticed Rich's photos because we got a lot of people dropping in on the Facebook page this time around to comment on or like photos from this episode and also some photos Rich put up uh, commemorating. I think it was the anniversary of Russ Heath's death. Russ yeah, that passing, was that was like uh, passing. Yeah, like a week or a week or so ago. Oh, well, August August what twenty sixth? I think I said it was. Yeah, so it's been like what four years? I think. Yep. So we've got we've got some likes from Rick Roberts, the Earth Two podcast, Yildirim Attila Akin, Mark Myers, Opie Taylor, Pericles Menezes or Menezes, uh, Clint Carlisle, Kirk Navakow, Mark Myers. We got Ged Alangui, Jeff Jones, and well, some of these people commented on more than or liked more than one. So. Uh, you know, people are are noticing the work that Rich is putting into the uh, the photo folders over on the Facebook page, and I got to recommend that to everybody. Rich really digs up a lot of content, puts it over there for you guys to look at, to uh, to add to the episodes and just stuff beyond the episodes. Even this is really putting a lot of stuff up there for y'all to check out. So it's it's cool for me to see people are starting to find it and and like it and comment on it. So I say actually. Uh... Was it uh, Dan Brown over at uh, Pack Cells? He wanted to know, uh, as we mentioned, that I made up a, 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 my own copy of what I called the Next Five, you know, based on Chris Pedrin's Big Five. He's like, "Can I get a copy of that?" <laughs> and I was, of course, only too happy to oblige and send a copy to Max, who forwarded it on to Dan Brown. So, hey, Dan, I hope you enjoy the effort over there at Pack Cells. Yeah, Rich is not on Twitter, people. So I'm I'm the guy doing the Weird Warriors over on Twitter, and both Rich and I do the Facebook page technically, but he really supplies most of the content over on Facebook. So yeah, I forgot to mention that, but but Dan was curious about the next five, and Rich uh, coughed up a copy, and Dan was very psyched to get that. So, you know, again, just ask us, people. We'll send you stuff, especially if it's Rich's. I'll give you everything he's got so. <laughs> account numbers social security yeah. <laughs> whatever you might need garage you know? door so, combination <laughs> again remember people we're on twitter at weird war pod we're on facebook uh we've got an email address that still nobody has used called uh weird warriors podcast at gmail.com creatively enough and that's us for this episode for uh the next episode teaser rich tell them what they're in for it's another special mission or is it? We redeploy with Weird War Tales number one from 1997. <laughs> Spooky time travel, second volume of Weird War. <laughs> Love it. I, I, I can't wait. Um, I'm going to be picking these up myself because I've not read them. I've got to grab me some copies before we record. I'm lucky you're taking a trip soon. So. <laughs> A lot of time you all hear this, I'll be back quite a while. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. This episode is probably coming out December 1st. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Again, th- there we go. We got another full issue, multi-chapter Sheldon Meyer story in Weird War Tales. It was great. We've got people finding the photos on Facebook, which I, again, I'm very psyched about. I, I like seeing people dig into that stuff. And, you know, I- I'm really looking forward to checking out the late 90s version of Weird War Tales. So until we get to that point, I am Max. I am Rich. And we are the Weird Warriors. This is the Weird Warriors podcast, and we promise to make war. No more.